We are in the Gospel of Mark. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, uh, if you'd like to navigate on your device, it's Mark chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 24 through 37. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. Our topic, Jesus heals a deaf man with a speech impediment using his spit. Title of our message, let's spit this one out. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. We appreciate the love that you reveal to us, Lord, as we gather together, as we uh, see our relationships with one another, Lord, that you've created based on that love, as we feel your love in this place. Uh, All of us have come uh, with various needs and concerns and wants, Lord. I pray that you would meet us spiritually where we're at. We would leave this place with a sufficient grace uh, to handle everything that's going on in our lives and with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Her real name is Tardar Sauce. Not Tartar, but Tardar Sauce. You know her as Grumpy Cat. How many of you know Grumpy Cat? All right. Her owner says that her permanently grumpy-looking face is due to the combination of an underbite and feline dwarfism. Who knew? Grumpy Cat's popularity originated from a picture posted to the social news website Reddit in 2012. It was made into an image with grumpy captions like these. What doesn't kill you will hopefully try again. (laughs) Zombies eat brains. Most of you have nothing to worry about. And this one, if stupidity was an illness, you'd be dead by now. So Grumpy Cat, you can see how in our culture that would be very popular. The official Grumpy Cat page on Facebook has over 8 million likes. Grumpy Cat has appeared on Today, Good Morning America, the CBS Evening News, Anderson Live, VH1's Big Morning Buzz Live, The Soup, and American Idol. She appeared in a television commercial for Honey Nut Cheerios. She also appeared on a season finale of The Bachelorette and was special guest on an edition of WWE Monday Night Raw. Grumpy Cat. Now, the word grumpy came to my mind as I read the verses we're going to be talking about today. On the surface, Jesus seems a little grumpy. In the first episode, a woman comes to Jesus to ask him to deliver her daughter from a demon. Jesus first ignores her, and then he calls her a little dog. In the next episode, he heals a deaf mute by spitting either on the ground or maybe onto his own fingers and then touching the man's tongue. Was it a case of grumpy savior? After all, this chapter started with Jesus and his disciples trying to get some much needed rest. We all know how exhaustion can alter our moods. Guys, that's our default excuse, right? I'm tired. That covers everything. Whatever I just did is covered. I'm tired. Quite the opposite. Jesus was not grumpy, tired, but never did he act out of character. We'll see his words and actions communicate God's great love for all those who are hurting. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, never think that you are beyond the Lord's help. And number two, always know that you are on the Lord's heart. First of all, in verses 24 through 30, never think that you are beyond the Lord's help. Now, there's something we need to remember if we're going to understand how Jesus treats the woman we encounter in this passage. While the gospel would eventually reach the whole world, it's evident from the scriptures that the Jewish nation would be the initial recipient of the good news. In his account of Jesus' encounter with this Syrophoenician woman, Matthew recorded Jesus saying, I was not sent 
except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, he told them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not enter a city of the Samaritans, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, after his resurrection, he informed the apostles saying, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. And so the sequence of places where the apostles would give witness give the order in which the gospel would be presented to the world, to the Jew first and then to Gentiles. In addition, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Rome stated, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. God's intent was that the nation of Israel would accept their Messiah, that they would receive the Spirit and turn around and evangelize the rest of the world. Now, with all that in mind, let's start in verse 24. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Jesus was still seeking rest for himself and his disciples. Tyre and Sidon were outside of the borders of Israel, definitely Gentile territory. This is the only time, at least, that is recorded for us that Jesus was outside of Israel. He had encountered Gentiles before, of course, but never outside of the promised land. It seemed a good place for a group of Jews to be left alone and lay low for a while. Try as he might, however, to keep his presence a secret, he could not be hidden. That's one of those phrases you could take out of a verse and write a whole book about. For example, we could look back on the many efforts throughout human history to thwart the gospel in an attempt to keep Jesus hidden from people. We could cite in relatively recent history, communist China, closed to the West for decades, no one knew what was going on with Christians inside of China. When China was again opened up to the West, we discovered a vibrant underground church movement, millions upon millions of Christians that had gotten saved during that terrible regime and who were meeting to the glory of the Lord. The diabolical Chinese Communist Party could not keep Jesus hidden, no matter how hard they tried. So verse 25, for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and she came and fell at his feet. Jesus could not be hidden and word of his presence spread, but only this one mother sought him out. I can't help but wonder what Jesus might have done if more of the locals had come to him. It's the same today. We're not hiding Jesus, neither are a lot of the other good churches in our county, but the majority of the population in our town isn't seeking him out, and that includes too many believers. Yes, God is omnipresent. You don't have to be with other saints to experience him, but Jesus is depicted in the Revelation as walking in the midst of gathered believers. The church there is portrayed as a lampstand, and Jesus walks in the midst of the lampstand in a special way. He attends those meetings in a special way that we should not so easily dismiss. And so, well, sure, you could, you could be home right now, uh, you know, all cuddly, 
watching the webcast or not, or just doing nothing, and, and you could be in communication with the Lord. But he said, when believers gather together, I'm also there in a very special way to minister. Writing to the Corinthian church, the apostle Paul assumed they would meet often, saying things like, whenever you come together. It was in those meetings that God the Holy Spirit ministered through each saint as they exercised their gift or gifts for building one another up. And then there's this powerful and very direct exhortation from the writer to the Hebrews. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And so as we get deeper into the end times and you see more and more signs that the Lord's second coming is soon, of course the rapture could take place at any moment, there would seem to be a tension where people are going to want to quit going to church, but the writer says, no, don't forsake getting together all the more. Now, we're here. We believe, at least for today, that we ought to be gathering with other believers to meet with Jesus, to be used by him to minister to one another, and that's encouraging. So this isn't an exhortation to you to be here. You're here. It's just a reminder because what you do find out in the Christian realm today is a lot of anti-church sentiment. There's a lot of people writing on their blog. You know, you can write a blog and people think you're famous, you know. There's only three people in the world reading your blog, but you feel like you're out there on the world wide web. And, you know, anybody could read it, nobody is. But, and so, but there is a lot of talk among Christians about, well, you don't need to go to church and church is a big organization that doesn't represent you. Just go to Starbucks. It seems like everything happens at Starbucks now. When Starbucks became a godly location, I don't know, but everything happens at Starbucks where you just hang out with your Bible open and you just minister to people. That's really not a New Testament pattern at all. Jesus loves the church. And by the church, he means the gathered believers when we come together and experience his presence in a special way. And so God bless you for being here on Super Bowl Sunday when you could be working on your pulled pork or something, you know, and stuff. That's, that's great. I'm, I absolve you. But uh, anyway, uh, it, it, you know, so, so gather together and more, not less, as we see the day approaching. Now, verse 26, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Greek in this context means she was Gentile. That's the word to describe all non-Jews. And so as far as the Bible's concerned, there are Jews and there are Gentiles who are everybody else that isn't a Jew. And they're sometimes called Greeks because that was the predominant culture that the Romans had adopted. More specifically, she was a Phoenician from the region of Syria. There were Phoenicians from Africa and different places. So she was a Syro-Phoenician uh, Gentile. She was not a convert to Judaism. She was a straight-up pagan. She was definitely not the kind of person Jesus was sent to as Messiah. She's as far outside of the uh, household of Israel as you can get. And on top of that, she was a woman, uh, which usually didn't have much to do with uh, religious teachers. It says she kept asking, indicating Jesus was ignoring her request. Here's where people start getting stumbled, suggesting Jesus was harsh in his dealings with her. Let's wait to have an opinion until we see how this plays out. And by the way, whatever you're going through or whatever you will go through, avoid your bad opinion of God and wait for it to play out. 
It may not finally play out until after you go to be with the Lord. God is not, after all, on our timetable. It's therefore always advisable to default to what you do know about God, that he is merciful, forgiving, gracious, powerful, but also patient. It's what faith does, believing what you know to be true despite what you are going through because you don't see all the threads being pulled together uh, and you just need to trust and obey. Now, we've been pointing out every time we encounter a demon in the Gospel of Mark, that demonic possession was at a fever pitch when Jesus was on the earth. There was a literal invasion of demons as a strategy of Satan to oppose the ministry of the Son of God. Not so much before he came, if the Old Testament is any indication. We just don't see that level of activity at all before Jesus was on the earth. And we're also suggesting that we see far less demon possession today because Jesus is ascended and Satan has so many other more effective strategies for robbing, killing, and destroying. Make no mistake about it, the devil is a a liar. He robs, he kills, and he destroys. That's his modus operandi. But he's doing it more uh, with different strategies than with possessing people. Um, you know, a lot of people would have us believe we just don't see, you know, everybody's possessed, we just don't see it. Well, that's just not true. Uh, and we don't want to be going looking for demons where they're not at work when they're obviously at work uh, in the media and in the schools and everywhere else that we can see. And that's where the battle is, is raging. So verse 27 But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, taking at face value, this might sound harsh. He's been ignoring her, and now he's comparing her to a little dog. Uh, But actually, it's very tender. A key word overlooked on account of all the concern about the reference to dogs is the word first. It would have ignited hope in the woman's heart. First is not a word of refusal. Jesus wasn't saying no. He was saying wait. He said the children need to be filled first. It's not that you're not going to be the recipient of God's grace. It's that there's an order to this. Now I said earlier that Jesus was sent to the Jews first. The gospel was also for the Gentiles, but in God's timing. Jesus puts the woman's request in the context of a household. The characters he introduces in this household are the children and the little dogs. The children are the children of Israel, the Jews, the nation of Israel. The little dogs are Gentiles, all those who are non-Jews. Now, I've always read that Jews might sometimes derogatorily refer to Gentiles as dogs. Uh, In point of fact, most of the time when this is taught, you're just told Jews always refer to Gentiles as dogs. Now, there's actually far less proof of that than is necessary to form a conclusion. While it's clear that Jews kept separate from Gentiles, we should not accuse them of slandering them without sufficient evidence. That would be a form of anti-Semitism. And so it really is kind of anti-Semitic to say, oh, the Jews just routinely called all Gentiles dogs. Uh, And in reality, uh, though that happened, it it wasn't prevalent. And so be careful with that kind of thing. Anti-Semitism is a very powerful thing. It just kind of rears its head all over the place uh, in in our culture, and we don't want to be guilty of it ourselves. Now, there is a word for dogs that describes the mangy, mongrel dogs with no owners that prowl the streets, vicious, rabid creatures that you throw stones at or scare off with sticks. 
These, I've told you before, but every time we would travel in the third world, this was my nightmare, that I was going to be bitten by one of these dogs that just roams around. And there are plenty of them. I mean, they just come right up to you, and you're like, Lord, if ever I needed you, I need you now. And, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm afraid of animals anyway, and there's nothing more fear than these mangy, tick-filled dogs, you know, that are eating garbage in the Philippines or Honduras or whatever and stuff. And so far, so good. I've avoided that. Because, you know, who wants to have a rabies shot? Do you? I don't. Uh, so anyway, now Jesus used the word little dogs, which means pets. Far from the despicable creatures called dogs, these were beloved pets so much so that they were in the house romping around with the children. And she answered, verse 27, and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Johnny Carson had quite a few mannerisms and bits that are now legendary in the world of comedy. In his nightly monologue, he would frequently say, it was so cold, and then he would pause. It was a cue to the audience to shout out. There, some of you are cultured. After which, he would deliver the punchline. Now, Jesus' words to this woman begged a response. He gave her an opening to say what needed to be said so he could then deliver his spiritual punchline to her. She understood what Jesus was saying. In this answer, the woman was letting Jesus know that she understood his mission as Messiah to the Jews, but she also understood his ultimate mission to Jews and Gentiles as Savior of the world. So she wasn't asking for anything that wasn't promised by God. She said, yes, I know I'm not a Jew. I know you were sent to the children first, but as a little dog, I also can be a recipient of the grace of God. And so this is a beautiful encounter. She didn't take offense and say, who you calling a dog after all? I mean, she could have, but she didn't. She humbled herself and threw herself upon the mercy of God. She understood. Non-believers especially get too easily offended by the sayings of Jesus and the Bible in general. The Bible declares every human being a sinner. Jesus upheld that description by preaching repentance. It offends people who think they are more good than they are bad. And so this woman, she's hearing from Jesus and he compares her to a pet in the household and, and she, I mean, literally, she could have been offended by that. And, and I'm sure some of you, and you're sharing with people when you get to the real issue, which is sin, I mean, you're not telling people that Jesus wants to give you a better life. I mean, most people's lives are, they think, okay or that they can better them themselves uh, materially. You need to get to the point where you're looking at a person saying, you're a hell-doomed sinner. There is no hope for you. Your heart is black. It's wicked. It's diabolical. It's filled with things that we read about in this chapter earlier, adulteries and fornications and murders and things like that. I mean, you start pushing that button, you're going to have people offended. Who are you talking? Who are you calling a murderer? Well, you want to kill me right now, don't you? Yeah, but that's beside the point. And, and, and so the, it's offensive, when we tell the truth, we don't need to do it in an offensive way, but it, it becomes offensive. But people need to know that they're sinners or they're never going to repent from their sin. It's the old parachute illustration. You, you don't wear a parachute when you're flying commercially, but you'd put one on if the plane was going down. And so uh, your plane is going down if you're a human being without Jesus Christ. You need that parachute. You need salvation. We ought to agree with God because the person who understands they are a sinner will seek 
a savior and find that there is only one and it's Jesus. Verse 29, then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. This could be translated, go your way, for with the blessing of this word, the devil has gone out of your daughter. Using that translation, the words this saying refer to the word Jesus spoke and not to her answer. There was nothing magic about her answer that unlocked uh, an exorcism. It wasn't, you know, some kind of secret code. Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm, the demon's being cast out even as we speak. It's clear she had faith and that she answered profoundly. But we don't want to give the impression that there are any hoops to jump through in order to be saved. Jesus' encounter with this woman had far-reaching theological importance. It wasn't typical. It's, it's very important in what we call the dispensational scheme of things to show what Jesus was all about in going to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Now, the truth is, when a person first comes to Jesus Christ, they know very little. But that's okay because you don't need to be able to pass a spiritual test in order to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Uh, and so uh, the daughter was immediately delivered. She was exercised from a distance. Again, it's important we point out that Jesus was never bound to any method of casting out demons. Now, you can, you can go to places where they will teach you methodologies for how to cast out demons and uh, you know, one of the things that people seem to remember from this is that you always have to get the demon's name because unless you have his name, you don't have power over him. And, and uh, it's not true, you know. Jesus did not routinely ask for the names of demons. One time he did, and they said, we are a legion of demons because he wanted to establish for us how many demons he was dealing with at the time. Uh, but there, there's no one way of casting out demons should you encounter them. Don't waste time asking for their name. Is it George? Fred, you're Fred, right? No, just forget all that. And so Jesus goes out of his way to do things differently so that we don't get stumbled by this, but we still do. Today, we need not to be bound to our own ideas of what must take place in order for God to act. We tend to think this way more than we suppose. We, especially if we've seen God do something in the past, then we, we want him to do it the same way every time. And we, we continue to seek him the same way and expect the same result. Now in the end, this Syrophoenician woman's example to us is faith coupled with humility which trusts Jesus to act according to his word. Some of you are thinking, why isn't Jesus answering my prayer? If he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, why am I still struggling why am I still suffering? Well, I believe that set of concerns is the biggest stumbling block non-believers have when considering the claims of Jesus Christ. We can talk to them about creation. Uh, we can talk to them about all these other important apologetic subjects. But the thing that really gets people is this idea that if God is uh, powerful and loving, why is there suffering? And it's a huge problem for Christians as well. Sometimes we admit it. Sometimes we refuse to admit it but it affects us, it affects our walk with the Lord sometimes. I know a lot of Christians who've fallen away from the Lord, backslidden, uh, because of some uh, tragedy or suffering or situation in their life where they feel like God has let them down. The answer lies in understanding the times in which we live. Jesus came to the Jews first, but he was rejected by them. He did not stay on the earth to establish his rule and kingdom. He ascended into heaven, promising to come again. In the meantime, 
in the in-between age in which we find ourselves, his power and glory are being revealed not through multitudes of healings and other such miracles. Instead, he has told us that his power and glory are revealed in our weaknesses. I sometimes feel like the church in general is always rushing headlong into trying to figure out how to heal people and and to do miracles left and right the way Jesus did, thinking that that's the mission, when it's clear from a reading of the New Testament and following the guys that wrote it and that it's about, that God's plan changed and he said, no, my strength is going to make, be made perfect in weakness. We still need faith coupled with humility, which trusts Jesus to act according to his word. But most of the time, what we're receiving from him is grace sufficient for the predicament that we're in. That, that's probably a good testimony of your own life, and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. There are things that you've had to go through that you were not miraculously delivered from. Some of you are in them right now. And though God can do miracles and he can perform healings, we're not against that, we're for it, we're positive for that. Chances are what God is going to do is give you grace sufficient for the situation you're in. C.S. Lewis once said, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us, we are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. That's a fantastic quote. Uh, I hesitate to write it in, the Bible because then it reminds you that we live in difficult times. But let me say it again. We're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. And I think that summarizes the age in which we live. You are never beyond the Lord's help. You just need to recognize the kind of help he's giving you. Most often it is his strength to go through the trial. It is taking a walk with him through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, in the remainder of the verses, we're going to see that we're on the Lord's heart. This was the spit that was watched around the country. You'll probably remember this. It was in the miniseries Roots. Missy Ann's carriage stops at the Moore Plantation, and Missy Ann demands a cup of water from Kizzy. An aged Missy Ann doesn't recognize Kizzy until Kizzy reveals her identity to her. In the past, Missy Ann had not stopped Kizzy from being sold to a cruel, abusive plantation owner. Missy Ann pretends not to even know Kizzy anymore, who turns her back and angrily spits in the cup of water she then gives to Missy Ann to drink. Ugh. Gross, but appropriate. Now, Jesus is going to spit as part of his healing of a deaf mute. Gross or grace? Well, let's see. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis is the name given to an area that involved 10 cities. It's similar to us using the phrase tri-city or tri-state, only it involved 10 and not three. Now, the Lord was back now in Jewish territory. How much rest he and his boys got remains an unanswered question. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. It's hard to formulate a complete diagnosis He was deaf for sure, but just exactly what his speech impediment was, we don't know. Some suggest that since he was deaf, it impeded his speaking. After all, if you can't hear yourself, it's difficult to learn how to speak and form words. Others suggest he may have suffered from a physical condition such as tongue tie. His friends did the talking, begging Jesus to put his hand on him. Jesus, put your hand on our friend. 
Now, obviously, they wanted the man healed, but they asked in a way that suited their own understanding. They didn't ask Jesus to heal him outright. They just said, Lord, just heal him. Would you please heal him? They said, Lord, put your hand on him. Do we ever ask Jesus for help but sort of phrase it as if it can only come in a certain way? Uh, Yeah, we do that all the time. We have our idea of how this has to work out. Jesus, do this. Instead of just in a more general sense, Lord, I need help with this. I can't see how this is gonna work out. I'm just gonna, uh, can you give me grace and mercy in this situation while you work it out? And so we do this all the time and that's what they were doing. Jesus had no specific method for performing healings or any other miracles. He might put his hand on a person. He might not. He might do what you wanted him to. He might not. Nobody puts Jesus in a box. Well, we try to, but we shouldn't. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears and spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. Now, this guy's friends had done the talking, but now Jesus takes him aside away from everyone to have a conversation with him. It immediately validates him as a person, showing him that Jesus cares for him personally. He said, hey, let's get away from your friends. I just want to talk to you. And how did he talk to him? He invented a spiritual sign language for just that occasion. Jesus put his fingers in his ears, signifying he was going to open his closed ears. Skip the spitting for a moment, and next we see that Jesus touched his tongue, signifying he was also give him the ability to speak. Looking up to heaven signified the true source of the healing. Skip the sighing for a moment, and next Jesus says, be opened, which are the first words this man has ever heard validating everything said he was going to do. And so this is, uh, Jesus signed the healing. And I think that's pretty cool. He takes the guy aside and he goes. (laughs) Right, you got it, right? If I'm deaf, ears, tongue, open. Yeah, I mean, so it's cool. This is really cool. And so he's communicating with this guy. Now, uh, we might say that Jesus met this guy right where he was at. The gospel is a universal message. It's adaptable to any culture and any time in history. God meets folks where they're at without watering down the message. And so the message never changes, but uh, you know, the method can as we try and reach people in a way that makes sense to them. This is why it wasn't an original idea with me, but this is why when I uh, preach the gospel at funerals, I try to tie into uh, the funeral the profession of the individual or, uh, because a lot of the people in the audience are going to have that same profession and, um, and, and to show how you know, the gospel is, is powerful. We had a, a situation one time where a gentleman died who owned a mortgage company and everybody in the audience was doing real estate and real estate loans and I was able to talk about how they need to qualify people to, for a loan. You have to have certain credit rating and certain things have to, and if they don't qualify, they don't get the loan. And then I was, you obviously make the jump, say that same thing with the, the gospel. I mean, you don't qualify, you can't go to heaven. You're not gonna close that escrow. Uh, you're going to stay on the, the wrong side of the tracks, as it were, uh, unless you come to know Jesus Christ. And so the Lord wants to meet people right where they're at. Okay, so what about the spitting? I don't know. 
But let me suggest something for your consideration that I think could fit the context and portray Jesus in a tender and compassionate light. What if the man's speech impediment were tongue-tie? Well, according to the Mayo Clinic, tongue-tie, anchiglossia, is a condition present at birth that restricts the tongue's range of motion. With tongue-tie, an unusually short, thick, or tight band of tissue tethers the bottom of the tongue to the tip or the floor of the mouth. A person who has tongue-tie might have difficulty sticking out his or her tongue. It can also affect the way a child eats, speaks, and swallows, as well as interfere with breastfeeding. Another website dedicated to tongue-tie mentioned the following. Salivary profusion due to inadequate coordination of swallowing during speech becomes both visually and auditorially obvious. What a nice way of saying that you'll drool and spit all the time. That's exactly what them... No, that person has tongue-tie. I, I didn't act. That was a virtual spit, by the way, so... Why would Jesus spit? Well, if this man suffered from tongue-tie and had salivary profusion, at that moment, spitting was a way of saying, I identify with you. It was a way of letting the man know that Jesus was touched by his infirmities. He understood the kinds of hassles this guy had in his life. Maybe you don't think healing him from tongue-tie is a big miracle. After all, he could have just gotten out his leatherman and cut the skin, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's okay. There are a slew of other more serious conditions that can cause increased saliva. I'm trying to show how what seems a little gross to us is really grace. And besides, he took the guy aside privately before he spit, either on the ground or in his fingers. And so if the whole episode is Jesus trying to communicate with this guy in a sign language, then whatever the spitting is, it has to do with him identifying with this guy. And this line of reasoning fits with the other word we skipped where it described Jesus by saying he sighed. It's a word that means a deep, unutterable groaning in Jesus' spirit. It's a word that is perfect to let us know how deeply Jesus cared for this guy. He had never met him before, but he had created him in his mother's womb. His life of spitting and suffering were not unknown or overlooked by the Lord. He carried this guy on his heart, and when they were finally one-on-one, -on -one, Jesus sighed, signifying his own reaction to the sufferings of the human race. The Lord knows you. He formed you. He knows your tears. In fact, the Bible says that he saves your tears in a bottle that he's going to present to you one day. When Jesus sees your suffering, there's a sigh within him. How can he not cry for you even as he wept for Lazarus and at the coming destruction of Jerusalem? It's not quite time for him to return to the earth. There's a time of trouble coming first, preceding his second coming, to reach out one last time to the lost. But make no mistake, he is coming, and when he does, we will be coming with him, having been previously resurrected from the dead or raptured. And when he comes, there will be no more tears for us or him. All of our sighs will be shouts of great joy. Verse 35, immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. One, two, three, just like that. No therapy to learn speech patterns or to recognize sounds. This guy was completely healed as if he had never been deaf or had an impediment. We ought to strive for excellence when we're serving the Lord. His works are excellent and that is his example. Doesn't mean we need the very best of everything, only that we make the best of everything. While God will use whatever we offer him, we should strive for excellence. Verse 36, then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. 
I know it's wrong to say this, but I don't blame these guys. Of course you're gonna tell people. Hey, I've been deaf since birth and I've never spoken. I better keep that to myself. Now, Jesus' frequent instruction to folks he'd healed to keep quiet highlighted that he believed his primary ministry to be preaching and teaching, not miracles. And so he didn't want people to make a big deal about the miracle side of his ministry because what was really important was the preaching side where people would repent and get saved. And so that's what's going on with all of that. Verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. These were among the specific signs that the Messiah would perform to give evidence of his identity. There could be no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was the one who was long ago promised in the scriptures. You're never beyond the Lord's help and you're ever on the Lord's heart. Stand in his all-sufficient grace. Rejoice in him always. Amen? Amen.